You're listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic, a podcast from the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. I'm your host, Andy Moore. My guest today is Nate Allen. Nate grew up in Utah and attended Syracuse High School in Syracuse, Utah. Go Titans! He went on to study at Weber State University and the University of Utah, where he graduated with a degree in psychology. Nate began his career working in his community through AmeriCorps and Catholic Charities. Nope. Nate began his career serving his community through AmeriCorps and Catholic Community Services there in Salt Lake City. In the fall of 2020, though, Nate helped found Utah Approves, which is a nonpartisan nonprofit focused on improving Utah's elections with well-researched and common-sense policy. More specifically, they are champions of approval voting, which I'm sure we'll discuss more in a few minutes. Welcome to the show, Nate Allen. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm happy to be here. Now, I like to start each interview, as our listeners know, by getting to know the guest a little bit more and learn a bit how you come to this work uh, of working on democracy reform so, Nate, what was your life like growing up as a child? Were politics or civic engagement topics of interest or importance in your home? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, and it's causing me to reflect a bit because I actually grew up overseas. I grew up in the UK um, until I was about eight years old. My dad was in the military. And so we didn't really get like TV. We had like two channels and it was Elmo's World and the news, you know, <laughs> so um there wasn't much of politics uh when i was young and i didn't really think about it much i heard that bush was running again in 04 that's like as much as i remember about politics um but i was always encouraged to give back to the community my parents are very much interested in that idea um about being involved being a good neighbor helping your fellow person um so i think that value probably carried me up to this point um but no interest in politics originally yeah you know, I think we hear from a lot of our guests about those values that were instilled in the home um, from their parents or other family members that really taught them that that we are all a part of a larger community and we should find ways to serve that community and to make it better, right? Um, as my dad always said, you know, we should try to leave this place better than we found it. Um, and that applies, I think, to not just to like apartments you rent, but also to democracy as well. Now, Nate, I'm pretty certain that you are the youngest guest we've had on the program thus far. How, how old are you? I'm 25. Okay. So I I think you're probably the youngest we've had so far, probably by a decent margin, like a decade. Uh, And that's, that's not a bad thing. Certainly it's quite the contrary. I think, I think in my experience, a lot of people tend to write off younger people as being, I don't know, inconsistent or maybe apathetic towards politics. Uh, have so I'm a little curious to ask you, have you run into that sentiment as you started doing this work? Are people surprised that someone of your age is is involved in trying to reform a system that you've only been able to participate in for seven years, essentially? Yeah, no, that's a good way to put it. Um, I don't think anybody's ever said anything like that out loud to me, but I definitely get the sense like when I'm speaking with legislators that there's probably some thought in their mind of, oh, you're just super passionate about this and you probably don't know that much. And kind of like you said, you haven't been around that much to talk about it. Um, But, you know, most people are generally respectful. And I think once you can show that you know something and and that you 
you know, have something to say and have something to add to the conversation, that's when people's eyes and ears open up. Um, and my experience, it's not always about age. It's all, it's more so about experience in general, about what you know about the topic, because somebody could be 40 years old and, you know, walk into the back of a chef's kitchen and have no idea what they're doing, but there could be, you know, somebody who's cooking their whole life and 20 years old that could be excellent at it. So that's something that I try to keep in mind, especially to um, keep my own confidence when I'm trying to do what I do, because when you're talking to legislators, there's not much room for being unsure of yourself. So. Well, and I, admittedly, one of my friends is a state legislator here in, in my state of Oklahoma, and he is a little bit older than you. I don't think he's quite 30, but his first job out of college was to be a state representative, and uh, he's now in the state Senate. Uh, he moved to the upper chamber and he honestly proposes some of the the most reasonable and well thought out bills um, that I see come across my email uh, from our state, which is saying something because we get some real doozies this time of year. Uh, and so I think you're right. I, and I, there's certainly a difference between knowledge and experience, um, both of which I think work in concert, right, to better inform um, each of us and can certainly inform how policy is shaped and why it's shaped in a certain way, why we wrote things the way we did, you know, years or decades or centuries ago, and perhaps why they need to be updated for the modern world. And I think, you know, at least there seems to be a general consensus kind of among the political establishment that unlocking the youth vote, right, is a key, um, a key step in winning elections both for candidates and for issues like uh, like democracy reform type things. Um, but I know we don't always see a lot of investment, in, long-term investment in younger voters. There's certainly some really excellent organizations that do this work, and I think we've seen an increase, a growth of them over the last few years. But when I look at specifically candidate races, uh, we don't, I, I think the people that I know or that I've talked to that are like longtime politicos usually say, yeah, we need youth voice. We need youth voices, but we're not going to spend too much time or effort recruiting them because the chances are they're not going to turn out. And so it comes across like they will do the bare minimum, but have generally written off, uh, you know, the youngest voters as a block. Um, how do you how do you push back against that when you when you run into that? Yeah, um, I think that's an issue that's been around for a really long time. Uh, the youth vote just doesn't come out. And there's probably all sorts of psychological reasons for this. Um, one that comes to mind is just being more interested in social stuff at that time in your life. You're, you're more interested in establishing yourself and making friends and, and finding your community um, before you start thinking about how you want your community to be set up and how the society should function. But one thing that uh, kind of gives me promise is that in the last couple of elections, we've actually seen the youth vote go up quite a bit. Um, and part of that, I think, is the emergence of figures like Bernie Sanders, Andrew Yang, um, people who are able to bring a new vision and able to speak to the way that my generation views the world. Um, I think that one very prominent part of growing up uh, in the time that I did was that we got promised that the world was going to be incredible and that there was going to be, you know, booming economies and, and the world's going to be our playground and success is just as simple as going to college. 
But then as we grew up, we saw all of that become not true. We saw the world start to crumble in different ways and our institutions are failing. And so I think that this narrative of, well, the world isn't really working that well. And there's a lot of things that seem really simple that we could fix. And I think that narrative like really emerged out of my generation. And then when it becomes time for us to vote, I think, you know, abnormally, our generation has been thinking about these things that affect society at large longer than most people do. And I think that's why more people my age are voting right now. Um, and especially because there's, again, big movements like the Bernie Sanders movement who are trying to represent the populist in general rather than just representing special interests, which, again, is one of those big problems that we've been seeing for a long time. The last couple of weeks, I've been doing a rewatch of uh, Mad Men, right, the the show. And the episode that I watched last night was them trying to crack the code on, you know, young consumers. And I was like, man, this is exactly the conversation I've been having the last couple of weeks uh, in terms of politics. So it was real ironic timing. That show was probably on, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago at this point. Um, when that episode first aired and we're still talking about the exact same issue. So um, a couple of years ago, right? In, in I guess the fall of 2020, um, you founded Utah Approves. And now you guys are affiliated with the Center for Election Science. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So the Center for Election Science kind of helped me get on my feet, um, gave me some simple resources and ideas that I could use to try to establish Utah approves. Um, so they're pretty much the only large national organization advocating for approval voting. Um, and so the, the reason that I founded Utah approves was because I was a huge fan of Andrew Yang during his campaign in 2020. Um, and as much as I love the idea of universal basic income, and I, I still love that idea and eventually hope to champion it in the future, um, his ideas on democracy and government reform really stood out to me. Um, so one of those policies was ranked choice voting. Another one is uh, democracy dollars. Um, and so after he dropped out, I decided, well, maybe I can try to focus on some of these policies on a local level rather than, um, you know, losing all hope because we didn't win on the national level. And so I got really interested into ranked choice voting, um, found that it had some progress here in Utah and started to study it a bit. And then um, kind of ironically, it was in a ranked choice voting Zoom meeting that somebody just like threw out in the chat, well, what about like approval voting and star voting? And I had never heard of these and thought, well, okay, maybe it's like worth looking into um, and come to find out ranked choice voting isn't the only alternative voting method. And it also isn't the best one and isn't anywhere close to being the best one. Um, and, and I say that from the perspective of people who have studied and analyzed voting methods through intense measures and things that I couldn't explain to you. Um, but that's why I became interested in approval voting. And it's also a really simple policy and being in a conservative state, simplicity and cost effectiveness are something that have to stand out. Um, and so, yeah, I, I decided to found uh, Utah Approves, um, basically just focused on the idea that we should try to improve our elections here in Utah. Um, and so at this point, we are a separate entity from Center for Election Science. We're just a nonprofit 501c4, but um, yeah, they're great friends and have been very helpful. Yeah, that's that's really interesting. And, you know, I think we're starting to see growth uh, of interest in both approval voting and ranked choice voting and star voting, which is, I don't know, kind of a, a tertiary one from the mainline conversation there. And I think uh, 
starting to have some voters, right? Like rank and file grassroots folks who are asking those questions of, oh, I've heard of one, but what is this other one and how do I decide? And, and I think the, the most effective way that we can talk about that as, as a reform community is that the, the enemy is not the other alternative voting system. The enemy is the current, you know, first past the post um, two-party duopoly system that we are all working towards reforming, right? That we, uh, and, and being able to present voters, right? Uh, with the option to say, here's, here's the one that I like best. Here's what we're advocating for. The other group says the same thing. And we let voters be the ones to choose. Uh, and imagine the world, you know, what a nice problem to have in some ways to have on the ballot, um, multiple, multiple alternative voting methods, right? Let's say approval voting and ranked choice voting and that voters have to choose between those two. Uh, and we're not trying to choose between like one system and a terrible system that we have in place right now. Yeah. So, um, and I think you did a, a good job and I know that on your website on utahapproves.org, uh, listeners can find more information about what approval voting is, but could you kind of explain what it is for anyone who's listening that may not already know? Yeah, so simply put, approval voting allows voters to choose all of the candidates they like rather than just one. Just like the current system, you add up all the votes and the candidate with the most votes wins. Um, so there's no ranking, no multiple rounds of calculation. It's very straightforward. Um, and I'd say the main reason that approval voting initially appealed to me and still does appeal to me is because it elects consensus candidates. Uh, what that means is that the candidate who wins the race is almost always the candidate who would be everybody else head to head. Um, and this is a really important metric to understand when you're comparing voting methods um, is that head to head comparison. Um, sometimes we call this Condorcet, uh, the Condorcet criteria, which basically means that if every candidate was just paired with one other candidate in the race, they should be every single one to be the Condorcet candidate and the person who should ultimately win the race. Approval voting does that every time there is a Condorcet candidate, um, as, at least as far as calculating the votes from approval voting goes. Um, and I think this is important because this produces the candidate that most people would say, you know what, I'm okay with them winning rather than our current system, which often either produces somebody who maybe half we're lucky if we get half the population who really likes the candidate so most of the time that half who voted for them already compromised on some point and then the other half the population who just like vehemently hates that candidate and that's what plurality voting produces because when there's only two parties the competition has to be fierce and that's when polarization gets produced so um, i think end goal is that we want to produce a system that has multiple strong parties and by opening up the ability for voters to choose more than one candidate and for the candidate who wins to be that consensus candidate, or in other words, the most representative candidate, um, that opens the door for more parties to emerge and gain popularity. And that's better for all of us. Sure. Yeah. Here at Nanner, we often say that we're not, we're not anti-party, we're just pro-voter, right? And that, and I think, uh, you know, political scientist Lee Drutman has been pretty clear in his research and his writings that what America needs, what we used to have, uh, and what we see in thriving democracies around the world is um, a, a multi-party system where the parties are powerful, like they are strong parties, not powerful in the sense that they necessarily yield power or I mean, wield power or influence over the, the general public, but they are um, well-organized 
institutions, right, each on their own, um, rather than, you know, we have two highly divided but very weak parties uh, overall, right, which is why we see some division within those parties um, that they are kind of fracturing from within um, under their own weight. And so I think anything, right, that moves us towards a system that is more pro-voter, right, that puts more power, that gives more voice to voters, uh, moves us in the right direction. Uh, what are some of the, maybe the the critiques or the the downsides to the limitations of approval voting? Yeah, yeah, that's a good question. Um, one critique I often hear is that because it encourages for that consensus candidate to win, that we might end up electing a lukewarm candidate, somebody who was able to get elected by not being um, adamantly supportive of any specific policy. Um, you could say that's a watered down candidate and they might be able to win because every other candidate who's talking about specific policies gains opposition. And now this candidate doesn't have any opposition. And so everyone's marking their favorites plus this candidate. So that that's a potentially valid uh, criticism of approval voting. But the view that I subscribe to is that even if this happened in one election, the ability to vote for more than one candidate is often the it's the circumstance which allows incumbents to win so easily every single time and because you have to choose your party so if you vote for somebody and they end up being that lukewarm candidate and they win the election and then they get into office well they they have to do something they have to show their hand at some point so they're either going to do nothing which most people don't like or they're going to show their hand and they're either going to be a candidate that is liked or not and when the next election comes up that's the real question of do we like this candidate and approval voting easily allows the, the population to kick somebody out of office who they didn't like. And so it's a self-correcting uh, system, whereas something like plurality voting, if you end up choosing their own candidate, they're probably going to be in office until they choose to retire. So um, I do see that as a valid criticism, but I just don't think that that dynamic would end up playing out over time. Sure, yeah. And I, I think, I guess, like other voting systems, it is still incumbent upon voters to participate, right? If you have an election and let's say there's, you know, four candidates that have filed for a race and the voters don't particularly like any of them and you have low turnout, well, then the, the consensus candidate is still going to win and it's, but it'll be based on just a smaller number of votes, which is what happens under our current system, right? Um, and it, it sounds like uh, approval voting is still compatible with other reforms uh, like open primaries? Yeah, you could use it with open primaries, nonpartisan primaries, um, however you want to do it. Uh, I personally subscribe to the idea that we don't need to change our primary system. Um, I, I think it might depend on the state you're in, but somewhere like here in Utah, having partisan primaries uh, isn't really that negative if we were able to have more than two parties. Um, yeah, that's that's kind of a side note, but uh, I oft, often hear people talk about primary reform, um, and I do think that there's there's potentially some merit, like I said, in other states. But with what we're doing here, it just doesn't seem to be a great thing. And if you want, we can dive into that. But that's kind of a huge conversation. So, <laughs> I mean, that's what we're here for. So I'm happy to happy to talk about it if you'd like. Sure. Yeah. So um, I guess I'll just break down two options then. So there's um, open primaries, which I'm going to use that term to mean 
nonpartisan or sorry, partisan primaries where Democrats have their own primary, Republicans have their own primary. But regardless of the party that you're registered with, you can join and participate in whichever one primary that you want to. Um, now, there's this other term that I'll just call nonpartisan primaries, which is when all candidates from every party participate in one single primary. And um, you still have your party label next to your name, but that way everybody's still on the same ballot. And so I think there's, I guess there's two main arguments that are kind of behind this nonpartisan primary idea. And I'll focus on this one more because I see this one being pushed by a lot of larger organizations across the country. Um, one of the ideas is that because we have primaries that encourages more niche voters or people who are more interested in the political system to participate in that early election, um, and that obviously leads to lower voter turnout. So what you often hear the talking point as is, well, there are so little people choosing who we ultimately get to vote for that this can't be a representative system if that's how we're doing things. But my pushback to that is that when we, we in, in California, for instance, they have had nonpartisan primaries for quite a few years and their voter turnout has actually gone down. So we don't see that happen in real life. And then when you stop to think about it for a second, it doesn't really make sense why that would happen. Why would having one single primary where everyone's running in the same place encourage more people to turn out to vote? Um, if we did that in, here in Utah, the two candidates, if we did like a top two, some some places I think like Alaska uh, are doing a top four. Um, but say we did a top two, even if we did a top four in Utah, I'm almost 100% sure that all four of those candidates would be Republican candidates. So that almost makes the election less representative. Um, and so I don't know, I, I just, I don't see that helping because when you have a nonpartisan primary, um, yeah, you you ultimately end up, again, still having one election that decides which party is going to win and there's, it's still not as many people participating in that election. And so, yeah, I, I don't think it really benefits voter turnout. Um, the other thing that people talk about with nonpartisan primaries is, is that it weakens the major parties. And I do think that's true, but I also think it weakens the idea of parties like in the long term overall. And as we were just discussing, we want strong parties in the future, but we want more than two. And so the idea of nonpartisan primaries is really appealing right now because that would weaken the two parties that we want to weaken their grip on, on our, our process. But that would also produce a system where it would be harder for, for other parties to gain traction later on. So those are my critiques of nonpartisan primaries. Yeah, I think, you know, one could argue that it would make it even easier for for third parties to gain traction later on, because um, obviously having a closed primary system then locks people into it. Um, but the the cost for a voter to leave one of the two major parties to then jump into a third party might be too prohibitive, right? If you if you had open primaries and a third party candidate was able to be on that ballot and everyone could vote for them in the primary, you might have a higher chance that they would, uh, you know, receive a, a good number of votes and kind of prove their worth, right? And then they suddenly you start seeing these third parties show up and 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 receive votes uh, from a, a you know a wider swath of the electorate, and people start taking notice and saying, "Oh, well, since I don't have to, since I don't have to give up my membership of this party in order to vote in the primary." Um, then I'm freer to vote for whomever I'd like to. And maybe that lowers the bar and, and makes it a little easier for them to get in. 
Um, so I guess it would help to explain why I say that nonpartisan primaries weaken parties. And the main reason that I say that is because what gives parties power is the fact that they elect or, or nominate candidates for elections. Parties don't have much control over any other part of our like process other than the fact that they control candidates who eventually become representatives. And then their platform ends up getting played out in the actual public sphere. So if, if we made nonpartisan primaries, that reduces the ability for a party to nominate their own candidate. So what this does is it basically makes all parties like kind of pointless because if nobody has to identify with a party or join a party and they're also not um, choosing the candidates that they're nominating, then all of a sudden we basically have no parties. And, and if there's no role for a party to play, that's why I don't see for a third party to emerge. Now it'd be great if, if nonpartisan primaries simply level the playing field for parties and then parties still had the ability to uh you know gain traction and, and get donations and and gain like more votes each election and, and grow that way but i just don't think that if we if we take away the nominating ability from a party that kind of destroys its entire existence and then there's like no ability for them to develop a platform and that just kind of weakens the ability for any party to grow um now the other thing that can like have an opposite effect which i also think is detrimental is if parties don't have a nominating process but uh, in other words their primary process is usually that nominating process if we just make it like one at-large election in the primary already before the general then parties are going to be tempted to have a smaller nominating process maybe a delegate process or just party leadership choosing who their candidates are going to be um, and then all of a sudden we have an even smaller amount of the population choosing which candidates are going to run. So um, I don't know. And I'm, I'm not claiming that like nonpartisan primaries are definitely going to cause these scenarios. But these are things that I think we need to be discussing and considering before we just pass this policy, because uh, for, for what is supposed to be promised for nonpartisan primaries, those benefits don't seem to outweigh all of these possible downsides of it. So. Yeah, well, I, I think, uh, you know, listeners, if you haven't already listened to the episode of our podcast with John Opdyke from Open Primaries, who's another Nanner member, um, certainly encourage you to go back and, and give that a listen to hear more about it from from their perspective. And I, you know, I think for me, this is one of the things that I value a lot about the reform community is a willingness to think, right, to get in and kind of wrestle with the pros and cons of some of these ideas, these policies, and not just be, um, maybe not reactive, but like to, you know, to pass these carte blanche without giving them some careful reflection. Uh, if we're going to fundamentally change the way that our elections function and we want to make them better, right, and more representative and more fair and more uh, accessible to voters, then it gives us, uh, I think, responsibility to do it correctly, right? To do it right. That means analyzing a lot of data, means talking to a lot of people uh, and finding out what voters in a given area want, what makes sense to them uh, in a way that is, you know, palpable, palatable to election officials, to uh, in some cases, you know, state legislatures that might try to uh, gum up the system. Um, it's easy I guess if we if we approach this by trying to ram an idea down the throats of the groups that that don't like it or just down the throats of everybody, we might not be 
any better off than the problem we are purporting to solve, right? Yeah, absolutely. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back after a word from some of our sponsors. If you're interested in learning how to win friends and save the Republic, then you should know about Reformers Unite, a new virtual networking event hosted by Nanner, the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. Each month, Nanner sets aside a couple of hours solely dedicated to helping our members share updates about their organizations and to build deeper connections between Nanner members throughout the country. Reformers Unite happens on Fridays and is only available to Nanner members. So get on over to nonpartisanreformers.org and become a member today. Are you tired of the politics of division and deadlock? Do you want to do something about it, but you don't know where to start? CitizenConnect.us is your way to learn about and engage with over 400 organizations who are dedicated to helping Americans right, left, and center work together to heal our democracy. Find the organization or event that speaks to you and help us get back to making our great nation work because it only works when we work together. Learn more at citizenconnect.us. All right, and now back to the show. Uh, Nate, over the last couple of years, you guys, like everyone else, have been trying to organize during a pandemic. What has that been like for you? What's worked? What what hasn't worked so well? Yeah, I love that question. Um, so it's interesting because I started this whole journey during the pandemic. And so my experience of organizing has largely been shaped by that. Um, and so, you know, tools like like free tools to start organizing are so useful, like things like Google Drive, um, you know, like a free Zoom account or even Discord for holding meetings and communicating, um, Google Calendar, like all of these like basic tools, Google Sheets for keeping like a roster of all of the people who have signed up and like if you can't afford MailChimp yet, all of those kind of things have really enabled people to just start an effort whenever they want to. And I think though, if, if there is one thing that I would advise people to do is don't be intimidated by organizing, just go and find the free tools and find what you can use and, and don't worry about looking official or having a great looking web page or any of that and just have these conversations because because that's what real organizing is is having conversations it's making connections and it's talking to people about the issues and getting them passionate about them as well so as long as you can do that what resources you have aren't as important and those will come later down the road so just go for it and dive in yeah what kind of uh like uh what kind of virtual events have you all been doing that you've seen a lot of success with yeah, so uh, we try to hold like bi-monthly meetings and those have varied success. Um, but the Center for Election Science got a lot of us uh, approval voting organizers together uh, last summer to put together like a town hall and encourage us to invite anybody in our networks, um, you know, elected representatives even or whoever that might be interested in this space to come. And we had a huge turnout. I think we had over 50 people um, show up from and this was a town hall that like 10 of us newbie organizers set up and it was it was really cool to see that and, and people came and asked questions and they learned about approval voting so um yeah i think community events places where you can have a wealth of knowledge on a panel with a lot of people who are interested in learning about it that's the kind of events that will be successful yeah 
Are there any uh, groups, like we'll say demographic groups, that you have seen to be most interested in approval voting? Uh, yeah, that that's a good question. Um, I think it's an abnormal way to answer this question, but I'm going to answer by profession. <laughs> and I think that engineers and like people that are just interested in math tend to be interested in approval voting. Um, I think there's a couple of reasons for that. One is that it's not as popular as ranked choice voting. So to be able to get into voting science, you kind of have to be a little nerdy and you have to want to dive into the stats and the numbers a bit. And so those are the people that tend to find it. Um, but I've also, from our volunteers, I've heard all sorts of interesting ways that people have found approval voting. Um, like one good example, one of our volunteers was really interested in game theory and had studied that quite a bit. And then like got interested in voting methods and decided that approval voting is the one that like best kind of helps humans through the game theory situation. So <laughs> it's interesting. Um, but yeah, nerdy people, I would say, is the, the demographic who has been most interested in it so far. Sure. That's funny. Well, what's uh, what's next? As you know, I think today I saw that you, as of today, we are recording this on March 8th. Um, so this may be this may change entirely by the time this episode publishes next week. But uh, as of today, the United States um, has the lowest number of uh, active COVID cases we've had since June of 2021. So that's very good news, right? Um, what's uh, what's next on your plate? What what are you guys planning um, to get back out there as the as things begin to open back up? Yeah, so we've been doing uh, monthly voter registration drives this year so far, um, going out in person and trying to get people to register to vote and talking to them about approval voting. So um, we're trying to do more cabling events and, and getting out and just talking to people throughout this year is something that I'm really excited about. Um, but yeah, I mean, there, there's a lot of work to do across Utah and after that and across the country for approval voting. So um, it's going to be a long road, but I'm excited to push forth something that I believe in. Um, yeah, and and if I can, um, I've I've been I've been arguing a little bit of the logical side of approval voting and uh, and about kind of how these dynamics play out. But if I can, I just want to give a little bit of maybe a more motivational view of why I think this is important. Sure. So. Yeah, so uh, across the country right now, most people are feeling like their vote doesn't matter and that's playing out in all sorts of ways. Um, you see people worried about election fraud, you see people just tuning out of the system in general, you see people getting you know, passionate about voting rights and making sure that everyone has equal access to a ballot. And I think all of those kind of things come from this root feeling that our vote doesn't matter. And so I just want to let people know that we have not lost all power in this country. The the people, the general population still has the power in America. Our system is still set up in a way that has been uh, preserved enough that we still have that power. And so if we can join together around a couple of policies that increase our power even more, that give us more of a say in our actual elections, then it's that easy to return our country to a state of being self-governed. Um, we've been out of that state for a long time, and I think a lot of people have kind of been asleep to that, and, and the, the powers that be have taken advantage of that. But regardless of the fact that our vote doesn't have as much weight right now, if we join together on an effort, that's where our weight really uh, comes into play. And so I think if, if we can just join together around a movement, then we can really make the difference. Or kumbaya, right? That's, uh, that's how we get there. Yeah. That's very exciting. Um, Nate, I appreciate you being here today. Yeah, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. My guest today has been Nate Allen. 
founder and executive director of Utah Approves. You can learn more about Utah Approves and approval voting on their website at utahapproves.org. Thanks for listening to How to Win Friends and Save the Republic. This podcast is a program of the National Association of Nonpartisan Reformers. For more information about our organization and how you can join, please visit our website at nonpartisanreformers.org. Thank you.